Welcome to Higher ID, the podcast where we talk about all things instructional design and higher ed. We're your hosts, Christy J. Woods and Dr. Jess Seitler, and we are excited to bring you our next episode. This week, we have a special guest, Andrew Thomas Toby, a multilingual educational technology specialist and instructional designer at Educaro and German instructor at Lingoda. Today, we'll be chatting with Andrew about being a multilingual instructional designer and working cross-culturally. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. And just as a quick note, today's episode, there will be um, some Spanish and possibly some German, but we will always uh, provide a translation for that if if we happen to mix some languages in there for this episode. Are you okay with that, Andrew and Christy? Yeah, fine with me. (laughs) Yeah, totally great. I'm excited for it. Okay, perfecto. Vamos a comenzar. Let's get started. Um, Andrew, so you have to tell us, dinos un poco, right, sobre tu carrera profesional. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Okay. Um, so yeah, I do um, have a degree in linguistics. I studied English and German um, linguistics. I specialized in, well, technical language, intercultural communication, Spanish language and culture. Um so um, after studying in, in Germany, um, I had the opportunity to go abroad to the UK. Um, I studied a year in the UK, and I also had um, a number of scholarship opportunities um, that enabled me to visit different countries, mm. um, countries in Eastern Europe and also um, Italy. What else? Um, so, yeah. Um, as I was a student, um, I um, managed to get a position as an IT um, support specialist. Oh, cool. Uh, and then after that, I became a German instructor for, well, general German and technical German. Um, and then um, I got a position at an online school, language school. And mm-hmm. uh, that really got me into instructional design um, as I, well, um, as I started working there, I was just fascinated by the um, material they had. So up to that point, it was probably the most uh, sophisticated material I had seen. So um, it caught my interest. I asked myself, okay, so how can you uh, create material that's that great and that effective? You mm-hmm. know, that's really where it started um, for me that I got interested in instructional design. Um, and from there, um, well, I started reading books. I think the accidental instructional designers, <laughs> it's one to name, um, you, you might be familiar with it. Of course. Um, yeah. And then, um, well, I, I had the opportunity to join some communities like the one we are in, the um, ID community, also the global learning and development community. And then mm-hmm. I started taking courses. And uh, once the pandemic hit, um, I got a position as an educational technologist, and then from there, I, I little, little by little transitioned really into instructional design and um, started taking on more and more um, responsibilities of an instructional designer. That's excellent. And you still teach foreign language as well? Yes, I still teach. Um, these days, I don't teach much. For me, it's more of an opportunity to stay in touch with the students and not to um, become, well, an office worker and I'm working on Excel sheets. You know, um, I always like to be in contact with the students, with the learners. Right. I totally get it. That's that dynamic sometimes that you feel like you're missing out on um, and and seeing it in action, whether it's online or in person is so helpful when you go back to the drawing board and think about some of those engagement pieces. Totally. Yeah. And I'm just kind of struck a little bit, Andrew, about how similar it seems like your your story is to Jess's story, because you're both multilingual instructional designers you both teach language um so I'd like to kind of dive in a little bit about that so can you tell us a little bit about what languages you speak and how you became multilingual what that process was like for you okay um well um 
how did I become multilingual? I think um, first through the education system, um, when you start learning English at school by the age of maybe 12, and I think now it's 11 even. Um, then in high school, I was majoring in English, and then um, also, um, well, by taking classes at the community college, and there, again, um, a coincidence, I met a German-English translator. Mm -hmm. so, um, I, so at the time, I wasn't really sure whether it was possible to become multilingual. I was thinking that was more something of being multi or bilingual because your parents are, are bilingual, you know. So I wasn't sure as to um, whether this was something that could really be learned and to a high level of proficiency. So I started talking to this instructor. He was teaching English and I asked him, hey, um, is that even possible, you know? And he said to me, well, it's possible. Um, the catch is just you have to put in the time and the effort mm. and make it possible, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and he told me that it's a lot about um, motivation. Motivation. Um, you you have to be able to motivate yourself over long stretches of time to to get to that goal. So after that proof of concept, um, um, well, I went crazy. Um, studied studied <laughs> English um, for a number of years. Um, also went abroad and all that. And um, yeah, through all these um, um, experiences, through a lot of exposure, immersion, self-study, I eventually um, became bilingual first. And then after that, um, well, I would start studying Spanish um, again by proof of concept, this time polyglots. So I learned about polyglots. I learned about language learning. I learned about how they approach language learning. And I thought, okay, so it's not even possible. It's not just possible to become bilingual. It's even possible to become multilingual and speak maybe up to 10 languages. So it shouldn't be a problem for me to learn Spanish. And then I started learning Spanish. And um, this time, um, it was more autodidactic learning. I wasn't taking any classes. I was, you know, just, just learning on my own. Um, and then again, um, I took some some classes in Spanish, university level classes, um, and again a lot of exposure and immersion. This time, um, tandems and also societies like the Latin society and all that, and that eventually, um, well, um, took me to becoming multilingual. How about you, um, Jess? Oh, well, uh, I was the accidental multilingual. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I grew up, um, I'm originally from Arizona. And so I, um, I was exposed to Spanish at a very young age. And then in high school, I am um, not that I spoke Spanish, my parents, um, I was, you know, with my mom, and she didn't speak any other languages. And um, went in high school, I went moved to Arkansas. And I was in a young United Nations class. And um, I can say that Arkansas was quite a bit less diverse um, compared to Arizona when I was younger. And um, so in the young United Nations course, they put all the foreign exchange students in that course. <laughs> and um, I just like talking to people. I guess you would never guess. Nunca, right? <laughs> and um, so uh, I just, I thought, well, I would really like to learn, like to talk to people. I just say, well, how do you say this? And how do you say that? And how do you say this? And, and that was just high school. I was just like curious person. And then um, I was probably really close friends with the maybe three Hispanics at my whole high school and their parents spoke Spanish. So I was around that and then just kind of fell into it. And then in college, I didn't, I, I didn't think of it as a skill uh, I always thought I understood everything, but I thought I was imagining it, right? You know, when you're at that phase, you're like, I think I get it, but maybe I'm just making stuff up. I'm not sure. Uh, or my brain's making things up. Um, and when I got to college, um, I really didn't enjoy my Spanish course. Don't tell anybody. Shh. <laughs> um, That's okay. <laughs> it was charts. It was all charts. And um, I'm much more of a talker. And so I asked if I could test out not that I thought I could like do especially well, but I thought maybe I could do well enough to test out. And I guess um, I, I did test out and he's, and the teacher said, you know, Jessica, do you speak Spanish at home? I said, 
um nope nope i don't <laughs> he said well you test like um uh, like you're bilingual and i was like really he's like yeah and I was like that's really strange he's like we'd like to give you a scholarship to go to Mexico for a year would you like to go and that's, at that's that cool. and at that point although I loved being a collegiate athlete in in Missouri um I I think I felt culturally that I didn't fit in and mm. um I was looking for a space and I just didn't know who I was yet and so I went to Mexico for a year and wow. that's where I finally realized that I really did understand all those things that I was thought I was making up in my head. My brain really was doing all the translation. And then from then I couldn't go back to where I was studying. I was like, no. And I ended up at ASU and they're like, oh, well, you have to do a third language to have a degree in Spanish. You have to learn like Portuguese or something else. And so I started studying Portuguese. And then, and then I was like, well, my family heritage is really German. So I'd really like to study German too. So, so in, during my undergraduate, most of my classes were in Spanish, Portuguese, or German. I went all the way to Wirtschaft in German, and which is, is business, mm. German business. <laughs> um, and then I, I studied abroad again in Spain, and then I uh, only a summer in, in, in Germany. So my German is not that strong, although I understand um, quite a bit. And, and so that, and then it just continued on from there, right? Once you get two languages, that third one and fourth one and fifth one and sixth one, it just kind of just, it, it makes sense. And so then I studied Arabic, I became a medievalist because it just made sense. I studied Latin, that made sense. And then I married a refugee from Bosnia. And so I speak Bosnian, Serbian, Korean. <laughs> and it just, it all, it all fell into place just because I like talking to people. <laughs> That's cool. Cool yeah so sorry for that to be so long but that's the the huge story in a very short moment so yeah and so thinking about all these languages I know how it works for me but it is really interesting like I came into instructional design as a foreign language teacher I'm actually a historian medievalist uh by study by degree um but uh, here in the United States, even if you are a historian or a medievalist, you may teach one class of your specialty if you're tenure track. And then the rest of the courses are often literature or specifically Spanish language courses of, of some level, right? And and so when I came into instructional design, I wasn't necessarily hired as um, a multilingual. It wasn't a requirement. It just happened to be I had that skill. So one thing that I was like, really curious for you, Andrew, living um, in a place where being multilingual is even more common. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, do you feel that uh, like when you were going into the job market, is being a multilingual a requirement or is it an asset in Germany? And um, do you think it's more, it's uh, more common to be multilingual in Europe rather than US? So that's kind of a couple of questions there. Okay, let's just go ahead and unpack um, these questions. <laughs> um, okay, so is it a requirement or is it an asset? I think it can be both. I think it's an uh, it's a requirement in the sense that most jobs would ask you to be able to speak English so that mm -hmm. you can uh, conduct research, that you can pick up trends from the English speaking countries. So in that sense, I would say it's a requirement, but I think it can become an asset once um, you have above average level. So if you have a language level where um, you are comfortable um, producing documentation in English, where you are comfortable producing documents in English and where there isn't really much need for any any revision. So it's, it's not a matter of, oh, that's what our foreign friend did let's just go ahead and fix it, but it's already that good, speaking of um, idioms, collocations, grammar, you know, so that you mm -hmm. that you can't quite tell whether a native speaker produced it or not. Once you're at that level, I think it becomes a huge uh, asset. Mm. Yeah, and do you think it's more common? Because you talked about in your story, Andrew, about how it was part of your education to become at least somewhat bilingual to start off you know, speaking German and then to go move into speaking English. So do you think it's more common than to be, be 
at least bilingual in Europe rather than in the U.S., where maybe we kind of start with English and mm-hmm. and maybe stop there sometimes. Might be, might be. It's just you know the luxury of of being an English speaker, you know, and being understood by by anybody. Um, I think it's more common in Europe to be um, bilingual. Um, why? I think it's more common because of the proximity. Uh, proximity mm-hmm. to France, uh, Italy, um, whatever country. And so all these countries are within reach for you, um, if you are, for example, in Germany, Central Europe. And then there's also cheap travel. So I remember yeah. the last time the last time I traveled to uh, to London, it cost me 15 US dollars, 15. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> or, 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 maybe, or maybe 20, you know? So it's wow. it's it's that cheap that if yeah. you if you book in advance, um, you can get a ticket for maybe twenty US dollars or mm-hmm. thirty um thirty US dollars return ticket, which of course is ridiculous. So um, there there's a motivation because you can say to yourself, look, if I can speak French, I can go over to to France and sp- actually speak the language, you know. Yeah. And then, um. I think there are also political um, incentives. If you look at the Erasmus program, for example, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that allows you to um, to get a scholarship and then uh, go and study um, in another country of the European Union and then have your tuition covered. Um, mm. That's basically telling people, look, um, put in the time and the effort, learn the language, and then go over and have that amazing experience of, of living in in a different country so yes i think um for these reasons it's it's way more way more common in europe than in the us yeah i actually when i was studying in spain there's quite a few students um from different from germany or from england um in the erasmus program studying in spain as well mm. um so i did see a lot of that so I'm, i want to dig just a teeny bit deeper on that question um because you also so Andrew also speaks Spanish and so your your work tu trabajo is in español or no your work is in Spanish or no uh, mi trabajo es en inglés en alemán en español um, tenemos um, varios colaboradores de países diferentes y yo me adapto al, al idioma que, que habla la otra persona o muchas veces cuando los equipos uh, se juntan, um, se ponen de acuerdo y, y deciden que, que van a hablar en inglés. So I was just saying, <laughs> just to give the translation, I was just saying that I, I work in English, Spanish and German and that um, the language I'm in, the language I'm working in depends a bit on um, where um, these, um, well, uh, work colleagues come from, whether they are Germans, um, Spanish, uh, Mexicans, sorry, Germans, Mexican, Mexicans, or, um, well, uh, for, even from an English-speaking country. And then um, I would usually talk the language, um, which is the native language of these people, um, or we would agree upon, agree upon a lingua franca like English. <laughs> we would have our yeah. conversations in English. Really cool. And so, so I think thinking about instructional design, and again, I'm digging like one step deeper here. Uh, sure. Thinking about <laughs> instructional design, the content that you're actually making, because this is really curious for me because I'm working in bilingual spaces within um, instructional design, but it might be a little bit different, right? So I'm interested to know like the content that you're actually producing, is that in English? Is that in, in many languages? What is typical of the content that you're producing? Well, I've produced content in English and German and in Spanish again. Okay. Most of the content um, is in German, most mm-hmm. most of it, but um, especially um, the technical trainings we did. Um, so all the educational technology um, trainings, um, they would um, be conducted in English and in Spanish as well. So that, well, um, again, um, anybody who speaks English um, or Spanish could receive that training in, in their native language. So they they have choices. Like there's uh, with it. Like let's say you're doing a training for me, and um, 
you would say, okay, here's the training in English or here's the training in Spanish or German. You can kind of choose which language. Exactly. So yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, no, no, I love it. I love it because um, I, in the office, um, I speak mostly English, but there are, um, I work at HSI in Arizona. And so uh, Tucson is a very, um, very, I feel like a very bilingual community, a lot mm -hmm. of Spanish and English speakers. And often we mix Spanish and English because that is just how um, the community is. And so I'll be speaking English and then I'll, I'll be like, pues no, of course not. And, you know, answering in Spanish. And so we mix a lot, but within some of the courses that I'm making, I'm now having the awesome opportunity to create spaces that are also bilingual mm -hmm. and as well as create pathways that are English or Spanish. So I'm super excited to be doing that. Um, so I wanted to kind of get a better picture. Thank you for painting that for us. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're welcome. There's also, um, just to add a little bit to that, um, there's also localization, you know, like when we do courses, then sometimes we have to um, do some localization um, so that these courses fit within the, the target country. And that's, mm -hmm. again, a fantastic opportunity, you know, to put these uh, languages to use. Mm hmm. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more to um, around just instructional design. Um, well, I, I wonder if we can go there now, Jess, if that's okay. Um, I'm curious too if then it, your experience and the content that you work on, right? You're speaking multiple languages, you're creating content in multiple languages. I feel like that's a different experience. Um, and, and I'm not even bilingual. <laughs> let me let me preface that by saying that I'm not bilingual, but um, we do have some folks on our team who are bilingual and multilingual. And so the content that they end up working on um, will be things like um, like language classes. So we'll have foreign language classes coming in and they need work um, on them. And so that we just kind of have some folks who go to, you know, we have this whole program um, that's based in like Chinese. Um, I think it's like manufacturing engineering. And we have one of our instructional designers who's bilingual and he speaks Mandarin. And so he's able to really serve those classes a lot better than somebody like me who has like no context of what that looks like. Um, and uh, I see that happen a lot. Like the the language is the course and the, and then we're assigned based off the language we know. Um, I haven't seen as much in, at least in higher ed where the content is like um, almost language agnostic at first. And you're just creating that content and a variety of different languages. And then exactly what you're saying about the localization of putting it in the context of the community it serves. I haven't seen as much of that. And I don't know if Jess, you can speak to that as well, being a multilingual ID in higher ed. Um, but I'm just curious, what are some of the differences, um, maybe comparing a little bit about what's instructional design like in, an, in another country beyond the US? Sure. Um, I think um, this phenomenon of um, creating, um, really creating content in different languages to, to cater to different audiences, I think it's something you don't see that often in a higher education, but you definitely see it in corporate. Mm -hmm. Because there you have clients and you have to cater to these clients. And I think um, it's, it's more, of, more, of a set of, more of a set of conditions you would and see often and incorporate. I don't know what, what you think about it. Uh, what do you think about it, Jess? So, yeah, so that's, I mean, it's such a good question because I think um, my role as a multilingual instructional designer is really developing. When I first started instructional design, I just started instructional design as, I'm just going, getting into instructional design, right? Um, but being multilingual is, is who I am. You mm -hmm. know, um, language, sure um language is is who I am and it's not just English and so speaking Spanish is just part of part of my heart and soul <laughs> and and I laugh but I, I say that very truly um but so I was truly overjoyed 
one in my first position, I was always assigned the foreign language courses, even if I didn't know the language I could do because really my since I know so many languages, not fluently, but conversationally, um, it really I, I, I have a specialty in language acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could I could take apart any language and and help the faculty set those up and, and design those courses, whatever the language might be. When I transitioned over to the U of A, I was originally put on the sciences team, but then um, I kept getting pulled out to work on foreign language courses. And then also the U of A has um, really started this innovative bilingual journalism program masters. And um, they're making, they're pulling that program online to make that reach available um, to a broader audience of of mid-professional journalists. And they wanna make that better. They wanna make that available in English and Spanish and English and Portuguese and English and Navajo, um, really tending to the community that is is going to be using the language. Um, However, they do have to shape that around the languages that the faculty speaks, right? Right. Um, So, um, I just recently, um, when I came over to the U of A and changed out of sciences, I recently was able to really establish myself as a bilingual instructional designer in the fact that I, a majority of my courses are bilingual Spanish and English or in, in some language and um everybody knows that if they want a course built in Spanish or English or, uh, or even just foreign languages, I'm often, um, I, I often get tapped to do those courses. And, and I really appreciate that because um, I get to not only use my instructional design skills, which I feel like um, I have a knack for, I hope. Ojalá que sí. Yeah. But also, um, I get to be who I am and, Mm -hmm. and that's a polyglot and that's just part of my personality. Like, I feel like I fit in better when I'm speaking more, more languages, you know, I just feel more comfortable anyways. So, but as an instructional designer, I know it's been challenging because I wasn't hired as a by like required bilingual. And so, you know, that isn't the requirement. It just happens to be a skill I have. You, you are making an interesting point. Um, the idea of universities offering um, courses in different languages or mm-hmm. taking the opportunity to educate people so that they can um, work in a different country. Um, my partner works at a, a Spanish or Spanish-speaking university, um, and they are developing programs. Um, and what they what they are trying to do is they say, okay, if you study um, uh, a bachelor's or a master's degree, then you are required to take maybe four courses completely in English. Mm-hmm. So now, now the challenge is to have Spanish-speaking instructors um, to help them level up their English so that they can give the class in English and then, of course, um, create the material. But, well, the objective, of course, here is to make the students more comfortable um, with the phone language so that they could possibly at some point um, work in a different country. So um, mm-hmm. if we look at it like that, we, we might say that even in higher education, as you mentioned yourself, um, there is a growing need for um, uh, lang- for courses that are offered in, in different languages or in a bilingual fashion. Yeah, totally. I wonder, um, Jess, you, you've mentioned a couple of times like you weren't hired as a bilingual or a multilingual instructional designer, but I wonder that, and I, I have this memory, Jess, earlier in our friendship where you were like, should I put this on LinkedIn that I'm multilingual? And I was like, hell yeah, you should. Why aren't, why isn't that already part of your LinkedIn? It needs to be part of it. And so I'm curious about like marketing yourself and being multilingual, what does that look like um, just in general, but then going through like the job process, the um, job search and managing the hiring process, what does that look like as you apply for these positions? Is it, do you have, I feel like you kind of have to really put yourself out there as a multilingual or bilingual instructional designer. I'm curious from, from both your experiences and Andrew, I know that you just went through this pretty recently. So Maybe you can speak to that too. 
Yes, sure. Um, so yeah, I think um, if you are multilingual, that's something Jess um, already mentioned. Um, um, sometimes it doesn't really occur to you that this is a special skill. Yeah. For, you, for you, it's just normal, natural, you know. So I think you have to recognize that. You have to um, make it stand out on your CV. You have to make sure that this becomes sort of uh, a unique selling point, you know, um, because, well, it's it's a huge um, uh, advantage, you know. Um, and then um, as you go um, through the um, hiring process, I think there are definitely um, are some 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 challenges um, you you are to encounter. First of all, if you, um, as in my case, um, if you are um, as I'm doing now, if you are um, applying for a position at, for example, uh, an American uh, company. Well, then, um, if you are not a native speaker, then you are competing with native speakers of English for position in English. And you have to understand that this adds a new layer of difficulty to the game. But then at the same time, you also have to be mindful of the fact that, um, well, hiring calls aren't easy, you know, so they are just difficult by default. So you have to find a way to navigate through the uh, process. Um, I think these processes aren't made um, to select multilingual candidates. So you mm -hmm. can't really expect that the uh, hiring manager is multilingual. So the most probable situation is that you, as you are applying for the position, um, come across maybe just one person who uh, happens to speak any of the languages um, you speak. So you really have to take your chances, you know? Um, you have to take your chances and you have to check um, at what stage um, you are able to to um, showcase your um, uh, your language skills in in, in another language. All right, I think I'm going to jump in here on this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just kind of returning back, like, um, it was almost when I became an instructional designer from transitioning from faculty, it was almost like my faculty um, identification, like the person I was as a faculty member was a totally different person than what I than who I am as an instructional designer, because I felt like I wasn't able to use, you know, I spent <laughs> so much money to learn Spanish and be a medievalist. And, and I think when I got laid off, it was almost like I was leaving that identity behind. Does that make mm, sense? Yes. And then even though I took so many parts, I think it took me a while as an instructional designer to really feel like, wow, all that knowledge, even though I did spend a ton of money on masters and studying abroad and, and PhD, all of the that knowledge that I gained especially the multilingual, um, the multi the multiple languages, um, they actually foster my ability to be an instructional designer, not just speaking the languages and being able to mm -hmm. work in those languages and relate to people from other cultures. Um, but also, um, if you do some research on polyglots or bilinguals, um, neuroscience shows that bilinguals and multilinguals are incredibly creative problem solvers. We mm. are often thinking outside of the box to find solutions. And so um, I, I have realized that it was like almost coming into my own, if you want to call it Christy, <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was thinking about, man, I, I think I need to put this on my, on my LinkedIn because like this is who I am. And as a, as a redhead, it's not something people just automatically think, oh, Jessica speaks Arabic or, you know, or Jessica, even Spanish. Yeah. yeah um, a lot of assumptions made. Yeah. But I do see as, as globalization, um, as globalization continues to rise across the world, I think the value of speaking more than one language as an instructional designer, um, can definitely can definitely raise the bar because I think universities um, are looking to be more competitive. And one way to be more competitive is join the global market. And mm. if you're joining the global market, you have to create courses that are culturally, um, not only culturally accepting and diverse, but possibly offered in other languages mm -hmm. um, to support all the students. So. 
Yeah, I appreciate you both saying that because I feel like, um, again, not bilingual, but I feel like if, if I was bilingual, which it's always been, a, <laughs> I think everybody says this, right? It's always been a goal of mine. And I, uh, I know a very small amount of Spanish, um, very small amount, <laughs> um, enough to know that a part bits and parts of what you all say when you speak Spanish and then when you translate it I'm like yes okay great I was tracking a little bit um <laughs> but I I appreciate that you both were saying like it can also um not it may yes absolutely it's an asset and you kind of have to get past this wall for yourself of like I want to bring this part of my identity to the forefront and, and I don't want it to be a negative thing if I'm being compared to folks who maybe are native English speakers, as the example you gave, Andrew, but same thing for you, Jess, where you're like, oh yeah, I, I can bring in this part of my identity that I thought I had to kind of take off and set aside. Um, and I just don't think I realized that part of this um, marketing yourself is also um, fully embracing what it means to be bilingual and multilingual in the hiring process as well, because it's, it is a huge asset. Yes, definitely. Um, that, that's what was just speaking to, right? That it's part of your identity. So I couldn't imagine a life without speaking these languages on a daily basis. I, I, I really couldn't, you know? So um, you, I think um, the trick is to find a way um, uh, to show to people that this is part of what defines you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then also um, make them understand what impact you could have um, on a team being a multilingual um, instructional designer. Yeah, um, I think uh, one of the things that the inclusive design book uh, Mismatch talks about it says, ask who you've excluded when you are designing. And I, I feel like being a multilingual or um, kind of helps you connect with diverse cultures um, from those languages that you speak. They say that um, you can't understand a culture until you speak the language. And mm -hmm. I, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot of culture really embedded within the language and how you use it. Um, but I really think that... Um, yeah, that I had to kind of accept the that my language quill was something that I really wanted to use in instructional design, and I didn't have to separate that like past mm. to present. I I mm. could be a polyglot, I could be a bilingual because that's who what what made me really happy. But it also really was fundamental in leveraging uh, the type of work that I wanted to do. So now I get because I've leveraged that, I've said, hey. I want to do this work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm bilingual. And, but then people started to know, right? Like, yeah. oh, I want to work with Jess. I want to work with Jess. Um, so I think the big thing is, is, you know, um, if in the United States, Andrew, and I don't know if there's a differential or not, but in the United States, sometimes there's a different differential in pay and sometimes there's not. It just depends on how you were hired for those mm -hmm. Is there a pay differential for being um, multilingual or is that is that just part of the requirement? That's just the expected norm. Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I would I would expect that um, um, being multilingual um, shows um, on the paycheck. Um, I, I would expect mm -hmm. that to be true. Yeah. Well, we will see in the United States how that develops. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I feel like it probably depends really heavily on the place where you're working. Right, and and with what role they're specifically hiring into. You know, I mm -hmm. was the, ac the accidental multilingual who they hired for sciences. <laughs> so they're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, um, I want to go back though real quick, Jess. You made a, um, just to highlight something that I think is really profound and I hope that other people will hear this and think yes is um you're talking a lot about like your past identity and feeling like you had to let that go when you became an instructional designer but I have seen time and time again and had my own experiences having a previous career in counseling 
and then moving into instructional design. Um, it is such an asset to have other skills beyond just being an instructional designer because those feed into it. So for you, speaking to, you know, having multiple perspectives and, and being able to speak multiple languages. And so you get to kind of guide your instructional design experience that way. I would argue in the same way, having past counseling experience is great for instructional design. And I also felt like, okay, I'm not a counselor anymore. I can't have this counselor hat on, mm -hmm. um, but I feel like actually I do a lot more counseling now <laughs> as an instructional designer, working with my faculty and working with my SMEs, trying to get them to you know project management so much of project management is counseling and and building rapport and, and having great relationships so I just would encourage you know for anybody that's listening to this if they think that a previous experience that doesn't necessarily tie into instructional design isn't worthwhile anymore I would argue that it probably is and we just got to figure out how it fits um because mm -hmm. it probably will fit so I just wanted to put that out there because I I think, yeah, again, your languages are such a strong asset and there's so much of who you are and it makes you a better instructional designer. Oh, Definitely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I think so too. Absolutely. And um, I I think the teaching background um, mm -hmm. mixed with um, being a multilingual really offered me the opportunity to excel, whether I recognized it at the moment or not, offered me the opportunity to really excel into instructional design at an extremely quick pace. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I absolutely concur. So one of the big curiosities, Yamame Curiosa, just call me cu Miss Curious. <laughs> um, I am always interested in what the ID job market looks like in places outside of the United States, because I, mm -hmm. I honestly have zero clue. I Same. see see a little bit in Australia randomly, um, <laughs> but <That's funny>. yeah, <laughs> I, know, I don't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Andrew's like can't relate. <laughs> but but I, you know, Andrew, can can you uh, can you comment what the instructional design market looks like in in anywhere but the United States? Um, yes, sure. Um, I think in Germany, it's still in its um, infancy. I mm -hmm. think there aren't many instructional design um, positions, at least not um, being advertised as such. Mm -hmm. um, what, what you would find in Germany are usually academic assistants um, mm -hmm. would then take on some responsibilities of an instructional designer. Um, so I think that's pretty much the situation in Germany. There aren't, um, there aren't many um, professional development networks like the ones we, uh, we see in the US. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty much the situation um, in Germany. Um, in Mexico, um, you would have um, definitely um, already quite a substantial number of instructional designers. Um, the interesting thing there is that these and these positions are usually clustered around the capital, usually clustered around Mexico City. So um, um, it might become difficult um, to to get a position if you if you aren't in that um, geographical um, area. Mm -hmm. um, and then what you see in Mexico um, is that you have Mexican companies and then multi multi uh, national companies. And this, um, well, um, this shows in pay and benefits. So if you look at the Mexican companies, um, um, they would usually pay less. Mm. And then if you look at the um, multinational companies, um, then <laughs> what you get to see is sometimes um, American, French, uh, German companies um, coming over to um, Mexico and then creating this pay disparity where... Mm they would say, okay, cool, um, let's just go to Mexico and hire an instructional designer for half of the money and cutting yeah. off all the benefits. Or you would see um, sort of dodgy employment conditions where yeah. they don't, don't have an operation running in Mexico, but they try to tell you that they have, and then they would like to hire you as a freelancer, but basically you would be a staff member. And then, of course, um, you don't have your your benefits and um, you won't pay taxes um, 
and have all the social security and all that. Um, but there are also a lot of positive examples. So I think like always there are good and, and bad apples. Um, and there are a lot of positive examples in Mexico, um, American, German, French companies that just come over um, hire uh, talented um, um, instructional designers or educational technologists and then give them the opportunity to work in English, German, French, whatever. Mm. I wonder if there are like certain like job boards that you're looking at that kind of highlight some of those companies that are more um, multinational and, and then folks that are kind of interested in those companies can know to look for those. Is that is that the best way to look for a, a job like that? Or how, how do you even go about that? Well, I think um, probably the best place to look at is LinkedIn. Um, mm -hmm. I think um, just because of the sheer number of um, of um, job um, opportunity job opportunities, um, it's it's easy, you know, to to see um, whether something um, is a good offer or not, um, whether mm -hmm. it's legit, and um, what kind of skills they require, and then from there you can um, do some research on the company and learn more about them. So I think um, LinkedIn is is probably the best uh, place to start. And then if you are on LinkedIn, um, for me it's common to receive maybe three to five um, requests in a week. You know, um, mm -hmm. people asking um, whether um, I would be willing to work with them, you know, like offering me to to start the hiring process. So if you um, get active on LinkedIn, if you connect with people on LinkedIn, that will definitely help you as well to um, spot and then um, get one of these positions. Yeah, so it, to kind of summarize that, so it really sounds like in Germany as well as Mexico, it really sounds like there's more corporate opportunities for instructional designers over that of um, higher education. Yes, um, I would think so. Yeah, and I feel like in the United States, um, it's it's a very much a mixed, mm -hmm. um, a mixed bag. And um, higher education is sometimes known for more comfortable um, speed of development mm -hmm. and, and sometimes uh, better benefits, but lower pay. And mm -hmm. then uh, corporate, much quicker development processes, and uh, but higher pay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've only, um, I, the, the full-time benefited roles I've held have been in higher ed and instructional design. I've done some contracting in um, like agencies that will, you know, kind of subcontract out to other corporations. And, um, and I've done some, oddly enough, some contract work for other higher ed. Um, and they just don't, they don't have the capacity to hire a full-time staff or it's a short-term project. And so they just need somebody to come in and um, work on that. So um, definitely a different experience, I think, in higher ed than in, in corporate, which we we will have an episode um, kind of comparing higher ed and corporate in the U.S. too, that I think will kind of lend itself as like an extension uh, um, of this conversation for sure. Um, I want to be just cognizant of time. We have just a few minutes left. So I'm curious, Andrew, do you have any recommendations, resources for instructional designers who um, are interested in either working at a company that is uh, utilizing multiple languages, or if they themselves are interested in developing their language skills so that they can, you know, um, I like how Jess kind of put it, like come into like the global market um, if they want to become bilingual or multilingual. Do you have any recommendations, resources, things that you would uh, recommend that people start with? Uh, yes, sure. I think there are some some great resources out there. Many of them are free. Um, an example would be the uh, language courses by the Foreign Service Institute. Um, they were developed, I think, in the 70s, and they are now in the public domain. Um, that's an example. Then um, there are also great books for teaching yourself um, a language. Um, the Teach Yourself series is one I like a lot. There's mm -hmm. also um, a series called um, Practice Makes Perfect. Um, and they also have a lot of books um, on learning different languages. Um, 
There are also free online courses by the Open University. Um, mm-hmm. Courses you could check out for free again. Um, and then what else? Um, there are also courses on LinkedIn in multiple languages. So you could just get on LinkedIn and then change the language to English, from English to Spanish, French, or whatever you are learning. And that would even en- enable you to develop some domain-specific knowledge. Uh, so if you say, look, I want to um, be able to converse about marketing in French, then you take just a few French classes on um, on marketing and that would do the trick. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, well, my favorite resource is uh, public television. So I learned a lot of English um, watching PBS. So mm. I, I was just going through the whole program and picking what I liked and, um, well, just immersed. Um, in the language. So I think these these should be some some resources to start. Um, if you want to, we can prepare a document, maybe a PDF, and then I, I could just um, sure. leave some some resources for the listeners so that they can um, yeah. check. Yeah, that'd be great. We can, um, if you can make it like a Google Doc or something, we can link it out in our show notes of this episode and that, and then people can kind of peruse those resources for themselves. I think that'd be an excellent resource. Yes. Thank you so much. That's funny that you said PPS because my husband also, um, he was a refugee in, um, Zurich, um, in the nineties and he learned German through watching TV. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's, there's always something out there where you can learn, um, and practice as well. So, so Andrew, Fue un placer. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, uh, each charlar with you. <laughs> we didn't get to jump into too much German, but it's been a pleasure chatting with you in all the languages. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thanks a lot. Um, it was a pleasure for me to be here. Um, thanks for inviting me. Um, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is an excellent episode. Thank you so, so much, Andrew. And well, Jess, I feel like you got to share quite a bit of your story too. Yeah, that was so much fun. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening and join us on our next episode of Higher ID. Bye. Adios y shoes. Cheers. <laughs>